When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Oliver Glasner has been chosen to be the man to re-energise Crystal Palace after a barren run of just two wins from 16 in all competitions. The Europa League winning coach replaces Roy Hodgson, who stepped down as manager on Monday. So who is Glasner and why have Palace chosen him? And just how big is the rebuilding job on his hands? I'm Ayu Akimolare. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. So with us today, the Athletics' Dom Fifield, as well as our German football writer, Raphael Honigstein. Dom, let's start with you on this one. We'll, we'll get into some detail on Roy Hodgson's exit, but let's just briefly go back to last summer when Hodgson was offered a year contract. Some eyebrows were raised when it happened, right? Yeah, I mean, look, at that probably, with the benefit of hindsight, sent out the wrong message. It, it basically announced to the world that Palace were going to have a, a year in transition, a year when they hadn't been able to secure a long-term successor to, well, to Patrick Vieira, effectively, who was dismissed in, what, March time um, last year. Uh, Roy had done an excellent job towards the back end of last season, winning five out of their last 10 Premier League games, finishing, you know, mid-table comfortably from what had looked at one stage as if it was going to be a proper relegation scrap. And I think he he agreed to come back for the year because Palace didn't have anyone else that they they fully trusted. There was no one else available as far as they were concerned or that they could convince to come who would be a long-term project manager at, at, at Palace. Um, so Roy took it on. Uh, he lost Wilfred Zaha. He didn't lose any of the expectations that had been fueled by that 10-game run at the end of last season. And there were some pretty unrealistic aims for this season, I think, or certainly amongst, from those on the outside looking in, I, I think. I mean, actually, I think the squad is has been proved to be pretty paper thin this year. They started, they obviously lost Zaha. They started the season without Elise, who had a, a bad hamstring injury that he inflicted during the, the European Under-21 tournament with France. Um, and Eze has, uh, Eze has also been suffering from injuries this year. So actually, Palace have... Their, their squad has really been stretched this 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 season, and it's no great surprise to me that they've ultimately struggled and and have found themselves back in a in a relegation battle and and needing a bit of fresh impetus from somewhere. Elise with his injury record um, coming on at Brighton as the team are, are trailing three nil. We've actually reported on it as well that you know that that those kind of decisions angered the hierarchy at Palace. I think you need the context of 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 everything that was going on at the club at that particular time. You're losing three 0 at half time against your bitter rivals. There's a lot of pressure out there anyway because you lost your previous home away game five nil at Arsenal, and there've been protests amongst the the away support that day with banners up against questioning the ambition of the club and the and the ownership structure, which is an ongoing problem at Palace. And and I will stress throughout this podcast, I hope that that Palace cannot move on until they have sorted out their ownership structure and, and worked out what they want to do, uh, how they want to attack the future. Um, but 
Yeah, three nil down at half time. Elise is brought on. He's apparently fit enough to play as far as the medical staff are concerned, as far as Roy Hodgson is concerned, and I suspect as far as the player is concerned as well. And with hindsight, that looks an absolute disastrous decision because he lasts 11 minutes and then hobbles off with with a new hamstring problem that's going to keep him out for two months. And it was the perfect storm at that, at that point. Um, Palace just needed a, a G up. They'd been so ineffective in that first half at the Amex Stadium that, that at least say injecting something into their second half performance might have given some hope. It would have looked a bit odd. I think Roy Hodgson has argued that, you know, had they kept their best available player on the bench throughout the second half, given that Eze was also out at the time. Um, but it didn't work out that way. And with in the benefit of hindsight, it, it looks a terrible, terrible decision. Uh, and has denied Crystal Palace their their one of their more flamboyant attacking players for again a, a long period of time. Rafa, I just want to bring you in very quickly here, um, offering him a, another year. As Dom has mentioned, doesn't probably show much ambition moving forward. It's probably more of an interim kind of conversation, really. Yeah, and I think it goes to the heart of uh, some of the discontent. Uh, I always got the sense that um, Palace, like similar clubs. Uh, one of them in London I can think of, they don't want to just survive. They want to get a sense of uh, excitement, uh, trying to get higher, trying to get into Europe, trying to do something, trying to play good football and just doing the bare minimum just to keep ticking over until another season of misery is perhaps too strong a word, but sort of inertia is is not what, what football is about really. And I think that combination, um, that situation and Hodgson for another year possibly being there, I think that contributed a lot to the sense of uh, unrest and uh, and need for change as far as the terraces were concerned. You have to bear in mind also that the club are clearly prioritising the redevelopment of Sellers Park, the main stand, and that has taken the, the focus financially as well. So you know, for successive summers, really, Palace haven't spent an awful lot in the in in the transfer window. They haven't added to the manager's options particularly in, impressively. I mean, I know, you know, they're bringing a player for like fifteen to twenty million pounds, and for Palace, that still feels like a significant investment, and it probably is given their commercial revenues. But in Premier League terms, that's not significant. Um, you know, you, you buy a player from Brazil for fifteen million euros. If you're Crystal Palace, you actually need that player to hit the ground running in the Premier League and make an immediate impact. And I'm not sure how realistic that is. What about the decision then to move on uh, from Roy Hodgson? Was there a point in the season where maybe the hierarchy done with thinking we might need to reshape this and we might need to actually change who is leading this team? The reality of it is that the, the heavy defeats at Arsenal and at Brighton really made, made change inevitable I think at the club I mean look as a, as a club when you put a manager on a one-year contract you should be out there looking for who he's going to be his long-term successor throughout anyway and we've seen today in uh, Oliver Glasner's given his first interview to Palace's in-house television and he's talked about contact being made in the autumn last year well that's completely understandable it's the first time in my career I start uh, as a manager during the season. Talks, they started uh, already in autumn, but the plan would have been uh, to start in summer. Uh, yeah, now it came faster as we all thought, as we all maybe all wanted to be, but it uh, doesn't change many things. His priority um, and preference was to, to start working with a pre-season, so start in the summer, which again makes makes sense. But I think 
the manner of those defeats and the sense of toxicity that was generating in the stands, uh, the the discontent, the disillusion, the, the sense that this club was really sort of meandering dangerously close to the relegation zone in a season where everybody assumed there wasn't going to be much of a, a risk of relegation given the points deductions others have suffered and the three promoted clubs. I think that that's brought matters to a head. What I should probably stress is I, it, it, this may be painted now, the Glasner appointment, as great long-term planning. You know, oh, your Palace made the contact in, in, in the autumn and... And they brought him in, and it's brilliant. And they've they've really planned ahead, and and he's he's the man to take Palace forward. And that may ultimately be what it looks like, but I don't think it was this month. I I, I think that they the board went through various different candidates, different managers. They considered them all, and I don't think Oliver Glasner was necessarily the first one that they considered bringing it bringing in now because he'd made this so obvious that he would prefer to come in in the closed season. So they had to look elsewhere, first of all, to see, see who else was who might come in and, and inject a bit more belief into the into the structure and, and, the, and the, the squad and, and ultimately propel Palace away from the relegation zone. So I don't I think this was quite a messy process. Um I don't think it was as clear cut and defined as it might be portrayed now. But ultimately they probably have got probably have got an excellent candidate to take the club forward if he can get through and negotiate these next 13 matches. Raf, just before we delve deeper into who Glasner actually is, and obviously you you will know him from the Bundesliga, do you get a sense of how he felt about taking charge of Palace at this time of the season? I think as Dom alluded to, I think there was a bit of reluctance uh, on his behalf to jump into the cold water, as it were, uh, at this point. Um, you don't want to come from two teams that you've led to the Champions League to a team that might end up in the Championship. Um, that, that is uh, not where where his personal ambition is. But I think he took a lot of time deliberating this decision. I think uh, the fact that it was a slightly drawn out process had as much to do with him as with with Palace. I think he was really weighing up uh, the pros and cons. He had other offers. Um, including one very exciting one from a big German club that he turned down uh, because he was uh, more excited about Palace and the Premier League. But of course, I mean, if you are a manager, I think you always want to have your preseason. You want to have an influence on the squad. You don't want to take over a team that is, by definition, low on confidence, that has uh, maybe injuries as well. Um, and we also know, and I think this is an important point, that English football, for whatever reason, tends to be less forgiving to coaches who don't have an immediate impact. In Germany, you can get relegated like Klopp was with Mainz and still go to Dortmund, still go up the ladder because people look at the bigger picture, look at your coaching and say, this guy, we believe in him. In England, it seems for me a lot harder. Think about Vincent Company. Will he have as many big offers next year if he go, takes Burnley down, even though he's still the same manager, essentially, that had lots of big offers last summer? So I think that's something that weighed on his mind as well. How do I look? to potential other big clubs if I if I were to go down or if indeed I can't manage to get Palace as high up the table as, as I was able to do with Wolfsburg and Frankfurt in the Bundesliga. So these things played on his mind, but I think eventually the, the, the lure of the Premier League and Palace was, was too great to say no. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It's the Colombian against Alan McGregor. Rafael Bore wins the Europa League for Eintracht Frankfurt. Raf, just give us a sense of who Palace are taking on um, because it goes beyond his achievements at Frankfurt really, doesn't it? It does. I think he has shown everywhere he worked that he can be successful within um, the constraints of the club. He's left every club in a better place than uh, they were when he took over. And I think that is always a great sign of a manager to get the maximum or perhaps beyond out of a squad. He is quite intense. If he doesn't feel that the needs of the team are being addressed. He's no, not shy about talking about it uh, quite openly, quite, um, yeah, ruthlessly, if you might say. Um, I think for him, it's not so much about politics, but really venting and getting rid of that frustration that I'm sure lots of managers have when they don't get what they want in the transfer market. But of course, it does create a bit of tension. And when things are not really going so well, then that friction can lead to people parting their ways, which which happened with, with Wolfsburg and Frankfurt. But I think ultimately what's most important is that there's a really good coach here. Uh, there's a guy who's got a pretty strong idea for what he wants his football to look like, but is not dogmatic about the means to make it happen. He's not wedded to a particular system, not wedded to a particular way of pressing in a particular area, can be higher, can be lower. Yes, it's very intense. Yes, it's about um, putting pressure on the opposition, being quite direct, being quite vertical. But he adjusts quite well, I think, to the teams and the characteristics of the players at his disposal and finds winning combinations of personnel and, and systems for them. And again, I think, what more can you really ask from for from a coach? Uh, but yeah, he's intense. He's intense. He uh, doesn't take any prisoners on the training ground or in the boardroom. Um, I guess like all managed at this level, he's slightly crazy um, <laughs> because you don't get ahead in this game unless you are, I think, as a coach. But I think for for if I was a Palace fan, I'd be very excited that at least there'd be somebody who's going to give it a real go and is not going to take no for an answer and is not going to immediately think, okay, the extent of our ambition is always just to stay up and that's what we're going to play for every single season. He's He's got his eye on, on, on bigger and greater things. Dump, we're all sort of um, excited by those wonderful words there by by Raf um, on Glasner, but slight caveat and sort of pricked my ear a little bit is frustration with board. Should Palace fans be worried about this? Yeah, look, I, mean, I suspect there will be some friction at some point. That's almost inevitable. And... Yeah, if, if Oliver Glasner looks at Crystal Palace's transfer dealings in the last few windows, he'll he'll. I mean, he surely must have looked at them and realised that they're not 
the Premier League's biggest spenders, they target a certain type of player. Uh, you know, younger players these days that they can develop and sell on a profit. That is just where Palace are, and I suspect there'll be there'll be departures, high profile departures from Sellers Park in in the summer preferably before June the 30th to comply with P- PSR and, and FFP, etc. Um, that will then allow Palace to hopefully regenerate and revitalise the squad and with players that, that, that maybe are better suited to what he wants to achieve um, at, at the club. I think that's just, that's perfectly logical. It's he, he will have gone into this with his eyes open on, on that front. Um, it is a tricky situation board-wise, and, and yeah, with the Palace do need to work out where the club is going off the pitch and, and you know, what, what do they want to be. You know, We have a situation where, I mean, Steve Parrish is very much the, the man in control, but his shareholding at the club is, you know, just I think it's under 10%. Um, he has equal voting rights with his three other big co-owners the other members of the of the big four there but you know what what is John Texter gonna who owns 45% what does he want to do with the club long term I think it's probably very different to what Steve Parrish does and the way that they they go about things and then coupled to all that you've got these two billionaires in the states in Josh Harris and David Blitzer who are very much almost like silent partners I mean they they liaise once a week on these Zoom calls with with Texter and, and Parrish. They're not quite as engaged, let's say, certainly as Steve Parrish is. And Palace just need to, to work out how they move forward. Um, you know how they fund the stadium, how they how they fund the, the team rebuild, how they satisfy the sporting director Ducky Friedman, and now how they satisfy a very ambitious head coach in Oliver Glasner. Dom's just mentioned potential outgoings in in, in the summer. A, a very young, talented squad, in fact, actually. Um, some key players potentially might leave Palace this summer. In terms of Glasner, is he also a builder of teams? Does he have a sense of the kind of players he wants to bring into a club from his time at Frankfurt, from his time at Wolfsburg? The idea that coaches build teams is not really one that um, that's very prevalent in, in Germany because um, sporting directors buy teams uh, and build teams. As a coach, you have your ideas. You say, I want a fast winger. I don't like this guy. I need a different centre-back. But uh, the sporting directors, sort of two-thirds of the decision-making process is really with them. And then the coach says, yes, I agree or not. Um, so he's, on the one hand, he's, wor- he's used to working like that because he's never worked any different. But um, he's never been quite happy with with that either and has always pushed for a bit more control and a bit more uh, input and uh, has not been shy about letting everyone know if if his wishes are not being respected. I don't think it comes with him, knowing him a little bit. I don't think it comes from a point, position of ego for him. I think it comes purely from a position of what do I need for the team? And if he doesn't get it, it annoys him, frustrates him, and he can't hide that frustration and he's not willing to just suck it up and say, okay, fine, I'm just going to pretend that I've got the best team when when I clearly haven't. So um, I couldn't give you a squad or an ideal Glasner squad if he were to able to construct one. But if there's one theme that's a little bit sort of a leitmotif in some of the stuff he's done is, is pace. I think pace is very important for him because of the amount of running an amount of ground that his teams tend to cover. And uh, he is very concerned with sort of defensive quality. 
he went on a big rant uh, in Frankfurt saying, reminded me of something that Klopp said in, in different terms when he had problems at Liverpool. He said, you can't coach things like that. You can't coach quality uh, when they let in another few goals to many. Um, so I think for him to have reliable centre-backs that know what they're doing, uh, they don't need to be micromanaged, you know, and the way they position themselves, the way they go for headers, like all the basics, even though he was a former defender himself, and I'm sure he can help them. Um, I think that's also key for him. We know Palace love youthful players, amazing, potentially can sell on or whatnot. Um, through his experience, is, is he good with young players as well, Raf? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, clubs like Frankfurt and, and Wolfsburg will always have um, experience in the dressing room, but there is there is a nice mix and young players have shown for him, old players have shown for him. Um, again, I would say he's, a, he's the type of manager that tends to improve players within reason. If he decides that you're not good enough, then I think he focuses his energy elsewhere and sees whether he can uh, promote somebody else or persuade the board to to buy somebody else. He's not going to try and sort of chase forlorn courses and um, stick with players that he feels are simply just not up for it. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolev. I'm also fascinated by who else was in the running um, for this. What other names were put on the table other than Glasner? Well, uh, look, we've we've covered this in the in the piece that Matt Wiesner wrote in the in the Athletic. They they, they looked they looked at Kieran McKenna at Ipswich and everything that he's done there, hoisting that team out of League One and into a promotion race in the championship and um, they looked at Yulin Lopetegui not least because of what he achieved at Wolverhampton Wanderers last season where he took over a team I think they were bottom of the table at the time and, and took them safely into mid-table um, but for for whatever reason whether that was you know lack of experience or the sheer cost of, of a deal um, neither of those you know materialised in, in, in anything and, and Oliver Glasner was available. I mean, he has been available for a while, and and once I think it, it, they were given the right indications that he would be prepared to come early, as in now, as opposed to the summer. Then, then that that is the route they went down. Look, it's it's a risk still. It's a risk because for all the reasons that the Rafa has has detailed there of what he wants to do and what he wants in a team and what he needs in a team for the next thirteen games, he 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 can't be that picky or choosy as to who he's got to work with because Palace's squad is is. Very, very thin. I mean, look at the bench at Goodison Park on Monday. It was, I think, there were four or five youth team players with one Premier League appearance amongst them. And, and Matias Franca, the Brazilian, the aforementioned Brazilian that we mentioned at the start of the, the start of the podcast. I mean, he's he's had one Premier League start, um, so it's not going to be easy for him. Yes, he, he sounds if he likes pace in his team. I'm, I'm not sure there is much lightning pace in this Palace team. I mean, Elise when he's fit whether that's at the end of March or the beginning of April, will provide some. Um, Eberichieze, when he's fit, will provide some, although he's not explosive pace. He sort of he, he has that sort of gliding style that, that is probably deceptively quick. But other than that, I mean, I'm not sure. There's certainly no... There's a lack of dynamism um, and energy into this team. And so he's going to have to be... He's going to have to adapt to keep Palace clear, which is why the next 13 games are so intriguing, I think, because... I don't think we'll see Glasner ball. If that, is that 
what we're going to call it. I don't think we'll see that until don't next start season. That. Don't I, well, start that yet. Palace fans already are, believe me. But I think <laughs> I, I don't think we'll see that until next season. I and mean, I think that's completely realistic because until he has a, a squad that can play the type of football that he he, he wants them to play, it's it's not going to be a recognisable Oliver Glasner team. Um, it, and hopefully that's where the pragmatism that he does have in his managerial locker comes into play and, and keeps Palace well clear of trouble this year. Top managers taken on what many would class as sort of mid-table teams. I mean, look at Emery, look at Lepotegui, look at Iriola, for instance. Is there something here about managers have achieved great stuff elsewhere, wanting to really test themselves in the Premier League and perhaps there's a fascination there with taking these teams to the very top? Yes, yeah, a combination of things. I think a lot of players, sorry, a lot of managers and of course players, but we're talking about managers have a romantic view of English football and and want to want to be part of that. For some, it's about mixing mixing it up with the best coaches in the world and see where they fit in and how they measure up against them. Uh, there's also, I think, this idea, rightly or wrongly, that uh, managers, especially when they're successful tend to be more powerful in the Premier League than perhaps other places. Um, you know, when you think about the kind of power that Klopp and Guardiola have amassed or even uh, Arteta, I think there is a sense that you can be given a lot of time and a lot of power, perhaps more so than in a comparable club in in Germany or on elsewhere on the continent where there's always more sporting competence above you. There's always a sporting director who's a former player, who's a big name. Then there might be a chairman who's a former player, who's a big name. You'll have ex-players involved who, who all think they know better than you. So it's a different kind of um, culture, if you will, for managers. And at least from the outside looking in, a lot of these things are very attractive. Glasner's first match is against Burnley on Saturday at Selhurst Park. How real actually is this threat of relegation this season? You know, you imagine what, what would happen, the shockwaves that would be sent through the club if Burnley won at Sellers Park on Saturday. Then then suddenly you really are looking over your shoulder. It's two wins in six, I think, in the Premier League. But actually, you know, that's that's the that's the glass half full version of it. You have to go back um, a long time, back to actually the corresponding fixture at Burnley, uh, last year, to see the last last victory Palace had uh, prior to the wins over Brentford and Sheffield United, because of the squad depth and because they've they've been denied Ezra and Elise for so much of this season, and also, I mean, Czech Decore was such a big player for Palace. He was the glue. He was the player of the year. The the the, the defensive midfielder who needed it all together. He's ruled out for the rest of the season. They, they're not. They've not had Mark Gay of, of late as well after a knee problem that suffered at Brighton. When you take those four players out of this Palace team, it, it looks it looks more championship than you know than Champions League contenders. Let's put it like that. You're taking ch- champ- potentially four Champions League players out of the team there, and and the rest there's a big drop off to the, to the rest of them. And I, I, that sounds terribly disrespectful to to the Palace squad and. There's still potential there. There's still some quality. I thought their performance at Goodison Park on Monday was was actually really quite resilient and impressive in periods. It was a horrible game. I know that you know the, anyone who didn't have a vested interest in that match would have turned off after 20 minutes if that. But there was a resilience there that they haven't shown at times on the road of late, and I think that bodes well for for, for Glasner. 
Um, but I think the, the reality that they they tire in the last 15, 20 minutes of games, and they will do probably against Burnley as well, just shows how thin this squad is. And any squad that is like that, denied its four best players, is going to feel in trouble in a in a division that is actually surprisingly tight at the bottom. Take away Burnley and Sheffield United maybe, but Luton have surprised everybody. We don't know what's going to happen with Nottingham Forest. We don't know what's going to happen with Everton. And this uncertainty just fuels, you know, trepidation and a little bit of simmering panic in there as well. So we'll see. I think victory on Saturday in his first game would ease a lot of nerves. They've got Luton coming up in a couple of weeks' time as well. If they come through those matches with with wins, I'm sure Palace will be fine and they'll kick on because they'll have these players, apart from Ducure, they'll all come back in and, and be drip-fed back into the team. But But until then, everything's on edge. Do we feel with this new appointment, the ambition is to, maybe not this season, but next season, try and see if we can creep up the table, challenge for European football, dare I say it? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that is the ambition and that's what they've spoken about in the past, but that's... That might prove wholly unrealistic. Look at the Premier League. Look at look at the clubs above Crystal Palace in the in the Premier League. Look at look at the top ten. I mean, even saying like Palace should finish in the top half, they've done that once since getting promoted in twenty thirteen. They've finished in the top half once, and yet they've never finished below fifteenth. They're, they're in that little bracket in the middle. That there's a ceiling there. If if other teams get their act together and they perform as they can with their commercial revenues, with their financial clout they will finish above Crystal Palace in the table so I think actually aiming for ninth or tenth is realistically that's that's a challenge that's that's a real challenge and if he does that then fair play to him I know there have been you know Brentford's have done it and Brighton have done it on occasion Sheffield United did it one one year finishing the top half finish higher than Palace have done since it's getting promoted but Palace have got an awful lot of regeneration to do this summer again um, I am excited by it. I think it will be once we get through these thirteen games. I think next season will be will be really really intriguing to see how he does and how he how he attacks that. And I'm sure he will have the ambition and belief, self belief that he can muscle Palace into that top ten um, with the prospect possibly of of cup success and European football. But we've got to get there first. And then there's got to be a big summer of, of sales and, and purchases. And, and then let's see where we are and what, what state the club's in come, come August. This does feel like a regeneration project. And we talk about the things you said about being a Premier League manager, having the power or having the opportunity to regenerate this club and take it to a place it's never been must be something that any manager's licking their lips at. But you'll need the money as well. I mean, that's the big one. If you've got to challenge those guys up top, you need the money. Yeah, you need the money in the Premier League. Um, it's going to be difficult to do it um, without it. I think he will collectively improve this team, whether that's enough to really push into that uh, top half or even top third. Will remains to be seen. It might be that the ceiling is, is rather low um, for Palace and that the teams above them are simply too strong and too big to fail. But he, he will give it a go. And I think his idea is that he'll do enough, he'll make enough noise in a positive way and play enough good football to either do it with, with Palace or get noticed by a team with more money and uh, then get a crack at it with more resources. Well, let's leave it there. Dom, Raf, thank you so much for your time and do not forget to rate and review the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The Athletic. <laughs>